Hello and welcome back to another edition of Across the States. I'm your host, Matt Fisher, bringing you the premier state policy podcast, courtesy of the American Legislative Exchange Council. Today, we're going to be talking about health care. And joining us to discuss this topic and more are Matt Mitchell, Senior Research Fellow and Director of the Equal Liberty Initiative at Marcatus Center, Naomi Lopez, Director of Healthcare Policy at the Goldwater Institute, and Brian Blaze, President of the Paragon Health Institute. Matt, Naomi, Brian, welcome to Across the States. It's great to have you all on today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. It's great to be here. Let's kick things off by, you know, obviously, I know who you guys are, and anyone who's deep into the policy sphere here in Washington, D.C. or elsewhere understands the work you all do. But for our listeners who may not know, can you each take a moment to tell them about yourselves and the work you do? Brian, we can start off with you, then over to you, Naomi, and then Matt. Sure. Thanks, Matthew. I am now the president of a new health policy think tank, Paragon Health Institute. I've been working in health policy for more than a decade. I've worked for the House, a key committee in the House of Representatives in the Senate. And the first two and a half years of the Trump administration, I was a special assistant to the president for economic policy in the White House. I've really specialized in sort of all matters of healthcare and think it is the most important issue that the country faces. So, Naomi, I know you work as the director of healthcare at the Goldwater Institute. What does your work entail and what do you do for them and more? Yes. So, thank you for having me today. It's a real pleasure to be here and to join your audience. My name is Naomi Lopez and I'm director of healthcare policy at the Goldwater Institute. I primarily focus at the federal level on FDA reform and pharmaceutical prices innovations in healthcare and supply-side reforms. I've been working in the healthcare space for about 25 years at both the federal and the state level. And uh, Matt, I know you work as a senior research fellow and you are the director of the Equal Liberty Initiative at the Marcatus Center at George Mason. What else can our listeners learn about you before we get started? Yeah, so um, yeah, as a director of the Equal Liberty Initiative, we focus on discriminatory limits on economic freedom. And a lot of that brings us to state policy and things like certificate of need laws, occupational licensing laws, things that essentially are discriminatory barriers to liberty, to success, and to the American dream. That's awesome. I'm glad to have all three of you here today because we have a lot to discuss here. As you just said, Brian, healthcare is an issue that matters to virtually every American, especially in light of rising costs and more with the pandemic. So you obviously are the founder of Paragon Health Institute. What is the mission of Paragon Health Institute? And also recently, you guys released the first research publication, Don't Wait for Washington. Tell us about Paragon Health Institute and its overall goal, as well as the mission with this report. The goal of Paragon is to improve government health care policy at both the federal and state level really represent the interests of consumers, uh, American middle-class families that have seen rising healthcare costs for decades without really great results from the healthcare system. I mean, in some ways we have the world's best healthcare system, but in other ways we have so much inefficiency and waste and restrictions on both consumers as well as on doctors and other providers to best treat patients. So Paragon, we're really motivated by principles that will expand consumer and patient choice, that will inject positive beneficial competition into healthcare markets, and that lay the groundwork for innovation, because it's really innovation in healthcare that's going to deliver better products and better services at lower prices over time. The federal and state governments both have 
important roles in our healthcare sector. You know, we started the first major product that Paragon produced is our state health reform book, Don't Wait for Washington, How States Can Reform Healthcare Today. We did that for a couple of reasons. One, states have enormous roles in regulating the practice of medicine. We have great opportunity to influence state policymaking in this area, particularly coming out of the pandemic, where we've seen a lot of states relax restrictions on ways that doctors and nurses can treat patients and ways that patients can receive care. And it's also illustrated a lot of problems in our healthcare system. So there's a real opportunity here at the state level. With the political leadership in Washington right now, being as it is, without being really as open to a lot of free market ideas and government reforms, we really think at the state level, there's an opportunity both to provide examples for what other states can emulate as well as uh, to provide a roadmap for policymakers in Washington on ways that they can bring about reforms. The health reform book that we did is really organized in three principal areas. One is what states can do to increase information for consumers and patients to be better shoppers of care, increase options that they have. The second is what states can do to make it easier for providers and entrepreneurs to develop procedures and to develop you know, convenient ways to treat patients that improve patients' access to care. And the third is what states can do to be better stewards of state programs like Medicaid and like the state employee health system. Absolutely. So with that topic of state reforms in mind, I want to turn to you, Matt. You know, one of the beauties of capitalism is that it's designed to encourage competition, you know, a benefit that you argue has been eroded by a certificate of need laws. Now, most Americans don't know what certificate of need laws are, but they're actually been around in the U.S. for over half a century. I think New York passed the first one in 1964. They're technically older than Medicare and Medicaid, which are considered to be major pillars of our healthcare system. Now, it's still a topic that's pretty vague and uncertain. Not a lot of people know what that is. So for our listeners, first off, what is a certificate of need law? And what is their presence in the states right now? Yeah, so it's an unusual regulation in that it seems to almost entirely be designed to limit competition. So what a certificate of need law is, is it says if you are a healthcare provider and you want to open or expand your healthcare facility, you want to offer a drug treatment center or buy a new bed or an MRI machine, you've got to go before a regulator and prove that your community needs the service that you think that it needs. This is obviously unusual in a market economy and most other markets need is assessed by entrepreneurs who are basing their assessment on their expectation of profitability. What's particularly controversial about them is that your competitors quite often will sit on the board and get to veto essentially your application. If they don't sit on the board in all but five certificate of need states, the competitors are invited to come before the board and oppose your application. And in most of these states, a certificate of need can be denied simply if your competitors can show that your service will duplicate an existing service. So what the regulators consider duplication, consumers would call competition, right? So they're really an extraordinarily anti-competitive type of regulation. So it's effectively, instead of an approval process, it's not even that. It sounds more like a civil trial almost where you have to litigate and fight a defendant or plaintiff in order to simply build a building. Is that fair to say? 
Yeah, it does have a, a quasi-judicial type feel to it because your opponents are allowed to file their own you know, objections and then you can reply to those objections. There are boutique consulting firms that help people obtain certificates of need and they can cost you know, quite a bit of money. These things vary from state to state. Each state does them slightly differently, I should add, but it does sort of have this sort of quasi-judicial type feel to it. Right. So obviously many states have, my own home state of Ohio has a law, I believe, New York as well. A very limited one. Yeah. Very limited in Ohio. Mm -hmm. I guess that's better than it could be, but still. Looking ahead though, what can be done? Because obviously it impacts so much here. What are these laws ultimately impacting the most and what can be done to rein in and restrict these certificate of need laws? Well, I would say that the number one and most important thing to do is to open our eyes to the effect of these laws. And then the answers of what to do about them is pretty obvious. So whenever, you know, the idea of certificate of need comes up, hospital associations will come before state legislatures and tell them all kinds of scary stories about what would happen. You know, if you get rid of this law, then, you know, somebody will open up an ambulatory surgery center across the street from a critical care hospital and we will go out of business and no longer be able to care for low-income patients. If you open this up, then hospitals will disappear and there will be no rural hospitals in the state. So what I always say in response to these types of concerns is that we first need to recognize that four in 10 Americans live in a state with either no certificate of need law in healthcare whatsoever. And then there's actually additional numbers of Americans that live in states with extremely limited certificate of need laws. These are high income, low income, rural, urban, coastal, intracontinental. There are all kinds of different states. And we can look at what's happening to in terms of patient access, cost and quality in these states to see what are the effects of con. And as it turns out, we have looked quite a lot. There have been over 70 peer reviewed studies of certificate need laws dating back for about four decades. And the evidence is overwhelming. They do not lower costs, as their advocates claim. In fact, exactly zero studies have documented that certificate need laws limit costs. What they do do is they limit access to care. 97% of the studies that have looked at that question find that they limit access to care. A certificate need law means that the typical patient has access to fewer hospitals, fewer ambulatory surgery centers, fewer dialysis clinics, fewer psychiatric care facilities, hospice care facilities, they are less likely to receive care in their state. They're more likely to leave their state for care. They're more likely to drive longer distances for care. There's even greater racial disparity in the provision of care. And finally, on quality, the number here I would suggest everyone try to burn into their brain cells is 4X. For every study finding that con enhances quality, there are four times as many studies finding that it undermines quality. Mm. These are on all kinds of different measures, everything from higher readmission rates following heart attack, heart failure, pneumonia, more post-surgery deaths from preventable complications. There are uh, even lower patient satisfaction levels. Nursing home patients are more likely to be restrained, physically restrained in con states, a number of different measures. So, you know, essentially the number one, in answer to your question, the number one thing I would say that we, we should do is just open our eyes to the mounds and mounds of evidence about what these things actually do. And then uh, do what Many states are already doing right now, Florida, Montana, looks like South Carolina, maybe any minute. These states are pairing these laws back and in many cases just outright repealing them. And I'd imagine this makes it much more difficult to access healthcare, particularly for those Americans living in rural areas where it's harder to access a good clinic, but it takes this paperwork and all this approval process and we build a facility, I imagine, right? 
Yeah, that's right. So not only are there, do we find that there are 30% fewer hospitals per capita in con states relative to non-con states, there are 30% fewer rural hospitals. Wow. Not only are there 14% fewer uh, ambulatory surgery centers, there are 13% fewer rural ambulatory surgery centers in con states relative to non-con states. So it, it definitely has an effect in rural communities as well as urban. Naomi, to pivot over to you, I know this issue of accessibility really matters for a lot of Americans. I happen to live not completely out in the sticks, but I do live in a rural area of Ohio. And I know for many of my friends and family who live further out in the country, getting access to healthcare was difficult. Now, telehealth, however, I know in chapter six, you emphasize the needs for healthcare providers to catch up with the rest of the 21st century economy when it comes to technology. In particular, you emphasize that telehealth is an area ripe for significant improvement. I know at the beginning of the pandemic, being able to talk to a doctor over Zoom was not nearly as bad as some people want to make it out to be. In fact, it was kind of effective and innovative. What benefits could be realized for providers and patients through an expansion of telehealth? What is the promise of this industry and what are some of the loopholes as well? Or obstacles, excuse me. So as terrible and destructive as COVID has been to American families and our economy, there is a silver lining to the pandemic. And that is that we now have proof of concept of how and why medical innovations, technological innovations can actually be unleashed to provide more timely access and potentially better affordability for healthcare services. Telehealth is probably going to be the primary example of that. So often healthcare is not focused on the patient. It is not patient-centric. A lot of the fights involve insurers and hospitals and really leave the patients and consumers completely out of the conversation. And certainly they are not represented in the closed door meetings where the rules and regulations around healthcare are written. When COVID occurred, there were flexibilities at the federal level and many states followed suit, loosening the regulations that stood in the way between telehealth providers and patients getting the access and care that they need in most often in, in real time. When we think of telehealth, we often think about using a smartphone to hail a doctor, and that certainly is part of telehealth. But telehealth is much, much broader than that. Telehealth could be used for things like having a patient in an ICU unit being remotely monitored 24-7, both video and audio, and also having a diagnostic sent in real time to the provider so that an ICU patient that was relatively stable and did not need as intensive services could actually be at home with someone who cared about them and who, you know, in, in a more comfortable environment. We can also think about long-term care, where a lot of our older Americans go into nursing facilities when they'd rather age in place in their community around people that they know you know, oftentimes surrounded by family, the same kind of technology could be applied there. When we think about rural hospitals, this actually did take place during the pandemic. A community hospital will provide the best care possible, very compassionate care, but in many cases, they cannot afford to hire a specialist, for example, in strokes. So let's say a patient comes in and they have a very serious issue of, with a stroke where the very caring physicians and staff that are, that are on duty just don't have the, the expertise to care for that patient. During the pandemic, a lot of rural hospitals were able to hire, just when they needed the expertise, a stroke specialist in another part of the country. Unfortunately, there are so many laws and rules and regulations that had been limiting that. Fortunately, Arizona took a very proactive step in that 
the state passed HB 2454, which really expands the availability of telehealth and does so in a way that builds on this idea of universal licensing, where just because you're in another state doesn't mean you have you don't have the technical skills, the expertise and education to care for patients within the state of Arizona, within those borders. So what this law does is it is very patient-focused, very patient-centric, and basically says that if you're in good standing and qualified, educated, and trained to do these services, that you can register with the state. You don't have to go through the full licensing process in order to care for Arizona patients. And it also really does open up the possibility of allowing rural hospitals to reimagine the care that they're providing. Obviously, they're not going to be able to recruit the nation's leading heart specialists, but they could hire them for a couple of hours a week when and if needed to care for their patients. And so when we think about what is possible, what we really want to be focused on is what can provide the best care for the patients who who need that access to it in a timely manner. And that's exactly what Arizona's telehealth bill did. You know, it's really interesting. Oftentimes, when I thought of telehealth beforehand, I thought about, you know, getting a yearly checkup, like, how are you feeling over a Zoom call and whatnot. But the idea of potentially inpatient services being provided through a remote location to someone's house. You know, I know Medicare Part A is going to, the trust fund is going to go empty in 2026, providing that inpatient care. I'd imagine this would result in huge savings for not only consumers, but taxpayers as well. So when we think about telehealth, I mean, we certainly, you know, and and states are in in an interesting position where budgeting is annual. States cannot create printing presses to create money. So when we think about telehealth, We need to understand that the utilization for services might increase in certain areas. For example, we saw dramatic increases in behavioral health services, but we also know that there's promise to reduce the cost of actual services, the actual cost of a a specific service, and that having access to treatment in a more timely manner in a way that best meets a lot of families needs and preferences. For example, a lot of families, you know, they might have to take time off of work in a, their hourly job in order to be seen. With telehealth, it makes it a lot easier to do it on a lunch hour without leaving an office or without leaving a job site, without having to hire childcare. The list goes on. So, I, you know, I think that there are a lot of tremendous benefits. And for states in particular, we are going to be dealing with a long-term care issue. Right. This is an absolute fiscal time bomb. And so if we really want to be serious about helping our older Americans have more choice in how they age and the quality of life that they're going to experience, this is really a great option for lawmakers to consider to integrate and unleash what is already technologically available to us. We don't have to, you know, go in and, 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 you know, create a better mousetrap. We have the mousetrap. We already have the capacity to do it today. We should be harnessing the currently available technology in order to provide more choices and also to reduce the fiscal impact that long-term care will have on state budgets that will squeeze out other priorities like transportation and education. Absolutely. Now, Brian, coming back to you, I know Naomi just discussed the issue of state budgets and whatnot. Now, you you specialize in this book as well as other places. You specialize on the issue of state health programs. Now, on the campaign trail in 2020, the debate over health care seemingly ignored Medicaid and state employee health programs. A lot of sweeping ideas that were pushed out there that were, you know, cool, but they were not really politically feasible or had the popular support in terms of Congress. But in truth, states possess a great amount of power and ability to actually reform health care. So when it comes to Medicaid and state health employee programs, what are some of the reforms in this report 
that can be pursued to create a stronger, more functional healthcare system within the states where you don't have to wait on Washington, D.C. to provide good care and to make sure everyone has access to affordable, good coverage? So let me, before I get to that specific question, just compliment uh, Matt and Naomi for the work in their chapters. And something I didn't say at the outset is, you know, there's eight chapters in the book. They're all really well-researched, well-written with lots of evidence. So like the study, Matt has gone, went through study after study showing that Khan fails on just about every metric that the proponents of Khan have advanced. Naomi's chapter is very compelling, goes through stories of, of people that have benefited from the expansion of telehealth in Arizona. And this is really a resource. Our book is a resource for lawmakers that are looking for ideas to improve their healthcare sectors. My chapter I wrote was on state employee health reform. And, you know, state governments are often the largest employers in the state, particularly if you add local government employees. And if you add teachers, then they're often far and above the number one employer within the state. So the question facing states is what can they do to reform their healthcare sector through reforms to their state employee health plan? And it turns out like employers can take lots of actions to introduce reforms in their uh, employee health programs. I talk about two specific states that have done actions to introduce reforms. One is the state of California. The state of California, more than a decade ago, implemented something called reference pricing for shoppable services. Reference pricing is a model where the plan sets the amount they're going to pay for the service, regardless of where the individual receives that service. So it provides an incentive for the employee to shop around for care. And what we saw in California, and this is for things like knee and hip replacements, uh, cataract surgery, people shopped, which isn't that surprising given that they finally had an incentive to shop. But the neat thing is that the high-priced providers responded to the fact that they were losing consumers and they lowered their prices. So the average price declines were 20%. Uh, when California implemented reference pricing in its state employee health plan. And another neat result, economists looked at 75% of the benefit that accrued to those lower prices accrued to people outside the state employee health plan because providers lowered their prices for everyone. So that's a concrete thing a state could do to lower costs within their state employee health plan that also has external benefits to people throughout the state. It's not just confined to the program. It's a broad sweeping improvement. Right. All that the state is doing in the plan, and it can just say to the insurer who's administering the state employee plan, is that we want to implement reference pricing for shoppable services. And we're going to pay, like, I think in California, they paid about the 60th percentile. That's where they, they chose that price. Now, there's ways that you can combine reference pricing with shared savings, where if employees choose a provider that charges much less than the reference price, that they can get a piece of the savings that would accrue to the plan, to the state in this case, 
from choosing the lowest price providers instead of from just avoiding sort of the highest price providers. So my chapter contains a list of recommendations for states on, on what they can do. Frankly, one of the problems right now for states introducing fiscal reforms is the federal government. And the federal government has lavished a lot of uh, spending on states through the various COVID relief bills. I mean, this is one of the problems why we have such high inflation is that the federal government has pursued inflationary policy, a part of which has been sending money to states, even though over the last couple of years, states are awash in tax revenue. The pandemic and the lockdowns were most harmful for lower income workers. Higher income workers were able to adjust. Stock market did fine. States are awash in tax revenue. Plus, now they've gotten this huge influx of federal funding. And when states are awash in federal funding uh, and they don't feel like they face budget constraints at the moment, introducing reforms in the state employee health plan and Medicaid are not going to be at the top of their list. I do think the Medicaid problem that's facing states is one of the biggest challenges that states are going to face over the next couple of years. In early 2020, Congress passed. Again, it was one of the first coronavirus relief bills, and it contained a provision that prohibited states from removing anybody from the program, even people that were no longer eligible, in exchange for uh, the federal government increasing funds that states received through Medicaid. So all the states accepted the increased funds through Medicaid, so none of them have been able to assure proper eligibility. And a proper eligibility of Medicaid was a problem that predates the pandemic. There were incentives that states faced because of Obamacare that incentivized states to increase Medicaid enrollment, particularly increase enrollment for people that could classify under Obamacare because the state received basically the whole cost of those individuals paid for. A CMS report came out two months ago that estimated improper payment rates. Improper payment rate in Medicaid is 22%. If you include federal and state spending, that's about $150 billion a year in improper payment rates. And mostly that's because states aren't doing correct eligibility reviews and people are on the program who aren't eligible. So we have a chapter in the book on what states can do to be better managers of Medicaid and sort of do some common sense things like actually verify applicant information that they provide when they apply to the program rather than just relying on self-attested information. I think as the federal stimulus goes away, as inflation is a problem, and I think uh, we're going to have you know, a reverse in fiscal policy at the federal level, that states are going to have to, in the next few years, be serious about budgets and addressing sort of high costs in these programs. Absolutely. And, you know, here at Alec, it's not often we hear some praise for anything coming out of California in terms of policy reform, but it's refreshing to hear them actually doing something right for once. A broken clock is right twice a day, I suppose. <laughs> so let's move on to our final question. Now, you mentioned inflation a moment ago, Brian, and I think this is among many of the issues that affect a lot of Americans, everyday Americans. Inflation's rising the cost of healthcare, though, for decades now has been rising faster than the rate of inflation. So in total, all the problems going on in our country, in looking at the reforms you guys have laid out in Don't Wait on Washington Report, which you can find at paragoninstitute.org, what would these changes mean in terms of positive benefits for the everyday American listening right now? If you're talking to a mother and father of two or three, what can they take from this report 
and what it'll mean for them in terms of their healthcare costs, accessibility, affordability, the quality of coverage. What does it mean for them in terms of tangible results and benefits? Brian, we'll go to you first. Matt, and then Naomi, you can finish us up. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the restrictions that government puts in place harm lower-income people the most because they remove sort of lower-cost ways of doing things. I mean, that's relevant in both uh, the certificate of need case and the telehealth example. It's also true of scope of practice. A lot of states put provisions in place that make it difficult or impossible for providers to practice to the top of their license. They make it difficult for nurse practitioners or physician assistants to treat patients to the best of their ability. They have sort of these um, supervisory requirements that restrict what those professionals are fully capable of doing and which have been demonstrated to raise costs without any benefit on quality. So, you know, removing these government barriers to lower cost healthcare alternatives will, in addition to improving access, they will reduce prices and they'll put pressure on the high cost providers because of additional competition and additional ways of accessing healthcare services. You know, we also have on the consumer financing side, we have a chapter on alternative plans to ACA, to Obamacare plans that are much more flexible for individuals that don't have access to employer-sponsored insurance and a much better deal for them than uh, Obamacare plans would be, where, you know, Obamacare plans tend to be very restrictive in the number of providers that accept them. These plans are, you know, much preferred by, by providers and because of the way that they're allowed to escape certain Obamacare rules, they're much more affordable for individuals. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, you know, that would definitely help a lot of families, including my own, in regards to healthcare costs. Matt, we're looking at the issue of certificate of need laws. Ultimately, what would we see the benefits for, you know, a family of four by seeing states begin to back off, especially in areas where we do see rising costs and a lack of access? What would these changes do for them? One way to think about it is just in terms of what comes out of the research, which is that the typical family would have access to more care options. Costs of those options would be lower, and that's been documented either through uh, you know all the different ways that you can look at costs in healthcare, whether it's charges or quoted prices or reimbursements, and that ultimately will affect them through you know lower insurance costs and also higher quality care. But one of the things I think I would, that I would emphasize is that you know healthcare is not a commodity. My view of the ideal healthcare experience is going to be different from your view. And yet, certificate of need treats it as a commodity. And so one of the things I would anticipate is that there would be more boutique types of service. So let me give you just a couple of quick examples of some of these types of services that have recently been stymied by certificate of need laws. So a few years ago, um, there was an all-female ambulance service offered by a group of Hasidic women in New York. And their idea was that, you know, if you are in a situation where you have to call 911, certain people, community of Hasidic women is going, are going to be reluctant to have a bunch of guys, you know, barge into their bathroom and find them in a compromising position and take them, you know, to get care. And so their thought is, let's be sensitive to the specific needs of this community. We'll offer an all-female Hasidic Jewish ambulance service. 
And quite predictably, New York said, no, we've already counted the number of ambulance services in the area. We view this as a commodity. And so one service is, is completely substitutable for the another uh, request denied. Similarly, there's a group of Nepalese immigrants in the Kentucky area that have tried to start a home health care service that, again, is sensitive to the specific linguistic and cultural needs of the Nepalese community. They, too, were denied because, again, Khan can't help but view it as a commodity. So what I would guess is not only are you going to see, you know, based on the evidence, are you going to see greater access to higher quality, lower cost care, you're going to see more boutique and specialized forms of care that are really sensitive to the specific needs of each and every consumer. That, And after all, that is what uh, the idea of competition is about. Healthcare tailored to each patient. That's right. Sounds like a huge reform. And, and Naomi, when it comes to the issue of telehealth, obviously, what are some of the peace of mind this idea can bring to many American families? What can this offer them in terms of, you know, the financial, the health, the just the peace of mind that often doesn't come for them when it comes to healthcare? So I think so whenever um whenever the listeners on this podcast really should take away is reminding them that they have the authority and also the responsibility to create reforms that are patient centric in Arizona I really enjoy telling the story of Claudia who is a mother of a disabled daughter twice a week she would drive from Yuma Arizona to Phoenix through the Arizona desert It was a three-hour drive each way in order for her daughter to see the specialists and provide the best care for her daughter. When COVID hit, it was actually a blessing to her. As terrible as COVID was for most of the nation, Claudia was able to have the basically seven out of eight of these medical appointments done via telehealth. That meant that she didn't have to spend money on two tanks of gas every week. She didn't have to drive across the Arizona desert twice a week. She didn't lose pay or leisure time two full days a week. This is what these types of reforms mean for real families, real constituents. It means that they can have better access to care in a more convenient manner at a lower cost. And think about all the families that weren't able prior to COVID to spend all that money on gas, spend all that time driving through the Arizona desert, and just the enormous toll it would take on one's life to do that, that many hours a week. This is what these reforms mean. They can bring access and affordability to the people who need it the most. The people who've been locked out of having the best care can now get it. More families can access care from the world's leading specialists and also more easily manage chronic conditions, for example, get access to mental health services in a manner that really does meet their needs. So when we think about what telehealth reform means, or really what any of these reforms mean, it's important to remind state lawmakers that it's their responsibility and they already have the authority to make these really important changes for citizens in their states. Absolutely. The idea of savings, not just on healthcare, but also in other areas of spreadsheet, like gas costs and, you know, being able to work a little bit more during the day to provide for your family. That's huge for a lot of families, I know. Before we go, for each of you, what how can our listeners get more involved in helping lawmakers pushing for change on the state level where big action, impactful moves can be made? How can they get involved? Uh, Brian, we'll go to you, Naomi, then Matt. Sure. Go to paragoninstitute.org and you can download our state health reform book that we've been talking about. And, you know, for state legislators, for policymakers, just for interested citizens. 
we've got a wealth of material there and, you know, we want to be as helpful as possible. In addition to Paragon Health and the really important bug dent weight on Washington, lawmakers can also go to the Goldwater Institute. And because of our unique policy expertise and legal staff, lawmakers who run our model bills can rest assured that they'll not only get technical expertise throughout the legislative process from us, but also that whenever they pass a Goldwater Institute bill, if there's a legal challenge on that bill, we will go to court and stand shoulder to shoulder in defending that. So we really do offer comprehensive assistance to lawmakers that want to pass really important free market consumer-driven reforms in healthcare. That's great. I would just emphasize, um, you know, I've worked on the certificate need issue for almost a decade now and have testified in a couple dozen state legislatures and I've seen bills fail and bills pass. And where they pass is when you see lots of different groups, Goldwater, IJ, now Paragon, coming together and really helping cover the issue because legislators are going to, in a lot of these cases, there is resistance to change because special interests benefit from the status quo. And so what you really need to do is build the intellectual ammunition to help fight back against that. And it often takes, you know, a village of free market advocates to do that. So, you know, please call on all of us. We're happy to help in testimony, op-eds, briefings, whatever it takes. Absolutely. Guys, it's been fantastic to have you all on today for Across the States. Matt Mitchell, Senior Research Fellow and Director of the Equal Liberty Initiative at Mercatus Center. Naomi Lopez, Director of Healthcare Policy at the Goldwater Institute. And Brian Blaze, President of the Paragon Health Institute. Thank you all for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners for joining us for another episode of Across the States. Be sure to stay tuned for more of the Premier State Policy Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Fisher, and I'll see you again next time, as always. Thank you for listening to Across the States, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the American Legislative Exchange Council, the premier free market organization of and for legislators. To learn more about our work or to make a tax-deductible donation, visit alec.org. Tell us what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Alec States. The views and opinions expressed on Across the States are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Legislative Exchange Council.